Ideas are everywhere. Welcome to Lessons Learned in Marketing, the Phoenix Group Podcast. I'm your host, David Bellarive, and today my guest is Jeff Toyster, author of the Service Culture Handbook. Jeff's been named one of the top 30 customer service professionals in the world, also one of the top 50 thought leaders to follow on Twitter. We had a great conversation about customer service. Well, welcome, Jeff, and thank you very much for for joining me today. It's my pleasure, David. Thanks for having me here. I wonder if we could start, if you could just uh, maybe tell, tell me a little bit about yourself and the Service Culture Handbook and how that came about. Well, you bet. So it's called the Service Culture Handbook, and the important part for me in the connection is a step-by-step guide to getting your employees obsessed with customer service. And I add the subtitle because that's what you should know about me. I'm obsessed with customer service. But probably more specifically with the employee side of things, uh, we could talk about strategies and tactics and technology, but I like to know what makes employees tick and how to help them perform at their best. I've been lucky enough that for over 20 years, every role that I've had has had something to do with training and and more specifically employee performance and customer service. And and so that's that's what I spend my time kind of thinking about, working on, et cetera. And uh, with with the book itself, when I had an opportunity to really start looking at organizations that had uh, these amazing cultures, it ultimately came down to employees. And I was fascinated by that question. How do you get other people obsessed with the same brand of customer service? So that's a question. Uh, I, I've written a book on it. And I'm still looking for more answers on it because it fascinates me. Well, I was going to say, you probably can't answer that question in, in, in a sentence or less. But um, <laughs> You know, we're all, we're all trying to, or businesses, we deal with a lot of businesses through our agency and just, uh, it, it just in life. And it seems a lot, well, most, I guess, are really trying to figure out great customer service. And exactly the way you talk about it, which is, uh, it's okay for me as the manager or owner to be obsessed about it, but how do I get employees doing that when I'm not there? That what is, is a, the answer? <laughs> <laughs> that's a big that's a big challenge, isn't it? And, and a big worry. I think the the issue you're you're really referring to is is this issue of scale, right? I, I how do I get this philosophy that I have to scale throughout an organization, especially as organizations grow larger and larger, that issue of scale becomes really challenging. And, and the first thing I, th- I think you have to do as a leader is you have to get that out of your head and be able to put it down somewhere, and, and preferably in a collaborative process where you're able to get your employees on board with a common framework. I call it a customer service vision. And it's a simple sentence that helps everybody understand what we're trying to do when it comes to outstanding service. Now, a lot of mm-hmm. organizations actually have something that could pass for this. It's a mission statement or a vision statement, et cetera. But the challenge is that in most of those organizations, if you ask an employee, okay, what's the mission here? And they'll say, mm, I think I, I saw something about that in orientation. Or, you know, there's a sign in the lobby, and it's, it's, it's over there. Let's go take a look. If you really want employees to understand it, you have to make sure that they know what it is, that they can describe its meaning and they can explain how they personally contribute in their role and that's the the part that's often skipped and and then the last piece that's absolutely essential if you want all of your employees to kind of embrace this and live this you have to make it easy for them to embrace that vision 
and to live it. So, you know, a real quick example. Years ago, I was a customer service manager, and I was told two very conflicting messages by the company owners. It was a small business. One message was, we want to deliver world-class customer service to the people who are our customers who are kind of collectors of these kind of interesting and high-end products. And two, uh, spend as little money as possible. <laughs> so those messages didn't jibe, really. You know, and we were li- quite literally paying just slightly above minimum wage. Uh, you can't bring in an employee to deliver that type of experience if you're going to undercut them at every step of the way in terms of cost. So you have to make it easy for your employees to live that. Well, that might come back to kind of figuring out what that vision is, because maybe low cost is part of your vision, but that there needs to be some shared, uh, I guess, understanding of what you're trying to achieve. You mention in the book, and I, uh, I, I thought it was re- it really struck home for me. Anyway, it's like we all say, "Oh, well, we want the vision to be let's deliver good service," but we need to really define what good service is, or what we are talking about for good a good customer experience. Have, what what examples or what companies have you encountered that do that well, or or how do you go about doing that even? So we should pause for just a moment. I'm picking up a little static on the line, David, and it might just be on my end, but can you hear me okay? I can hear you great, okay. yeah. Perfect. Um, so back to the question, uh, if, if I heard you correctly, it, it, you're looking for, you know, what are some examples of, of companies that do service right? Is that correct? Well, or even uh, have that, have been able to define for the for everyone in the organization what is good customer service. Well, this is what a good customer service experience looks like. Gotcha. Um, and, and sorry about that. It was just a little bit of static there, but I think we're clear now. Um, so there's, I think there's a lot of companies that do that. And the, the big ones that come to mind are probably the ones that we all heard about, the Ritz-Carlton, uh, Southwest Airlines, Disney, et cetera. They all have this customer service vision. I wanted to, when I wrote my my book, I wanted to stay away from those examples. Not that they're not good. Of course they are. But we've all heard their stories. So I wanted to come up with some new examples. And so a few organizations I I profiled um, that that have done this, I think, really well is REI. And and, and do you have REI up in, in Canada? Uh, that's a great question. We don't have it in Saskatchewan, but I think they are here. Yes. Okay. It, it's I I love this company because it's the if you like the outdoors, this is where you go to get all of your outdoor gear. And their mission or their vision that they've got everybody to embrace is that, and I'm going to paraphrase here, but it's essentially that that we exist to help people enjoy the outdoors, and to take care of the outdoors, and everybody gets that, and that's what makes it kind of special. If you go into a store, call customer service with this company. Uh, you're going to talk to somebody who probably spends a lot of their time outdoors and, and probably signed on with the company because they get discounts on the gear that they use. And so if you have a question about something, uh, they're passionately going to explain to you exactly what's the best option, how to use it, you know, any kind of tips or tricks, uh, you know, what other equipment you need. And, and that's what's fascinating about it is that people who are working for REI tend to be people who really love doing the same things they're helping their customers do. And it come, all comes back to that we exist to help people enjoy the outdoors. So they've gotten everybody to kind of gather around that, that vision. Uh, there's, a, there's another company uh, that I profile in the book called Clio. It's actually based in, in Vancouver, British Columbia. And one of the things that's really awesome about Clio, and again, I'll, I'll paraphrase their vision, it's basically that, that we want to help our customers get the most out of our product. 
and, and their product happens to be uh, cloud-based legal practice management software. So not very <laughs> sexy for a consumer, but if you're a lawyer who's really busy and you're trying to run your practice, you need some software to keep track of everything. And, and Clio's saying, hey, we want a product that's so brilliant, it's going to be easy to run your practice, and, and we're going to support you in such a way that, that you're going to love our product and, and even tell your other friends about it. And, and that influences how they provide support, how they divide um, – or, or uh, develop, I should say, new features and, and, and how they fix issues. So they have this common thread, again, that everybody is focused around, and you can see it in the unique brand of service they provide, but even in the way that they develop products, bring them to market, et cetera. Do you find, um, like, I think it's almost counterintuitive, and we were talking before we started about, you know, how even in your book you offer your your phone number out to people that if you want to contact Jeff directly, you just go go right ahead. And then on the other hand, there's this sort of fear of, of abuse of this service or, you know, like we're all trying to, as companies, maximize uh, and, and be efficient. And yet this sort of is, is it is it completely opposite of that where you're saying uh, whatever whatever we can do to help the customer, we, we need to go do it? Well, I, I think a lot of it actually stems from uh, executives that aren't particularly good at math. And, <laughs> and, and, and what I mean by that is, so if I'm considering a an investment in, let's say, an improved customer experience, I know what that costs. I can see that on my financial statement. But what I can't see clearly is what is the return on that? And, and so that's when I, I kind of jokingly say we have executives who are bad at math. It, it's be, what I'm really saying is I don't have clear line of sight to what that investment's going to deliver. And I think as marketers, customer experience professionals, customer service professionals, we also aren't great at helping to shed some light on that. So I don't think that we should automatically spend unlimited sums of money on, on creating the best customer service possible. I think we need to define up front, you know, again, what kind of service we're trying to provide and then align our organization with delivering just that. And what we do, what organizations typically find is you, you save money in some ways that maybe, maybe, maybe initially were not easy to, to find on your, on your financial statement, but in the long run are, are helping you quite a bit. And I'll, I'll give you a, a very simple example. There's the much maligned cable company, which is, I'm sure, universal. Um, doesn't matter who the company <laughs> is. But very few people will say, you know what, when I think of great service, I think of my cable company. I love those folks. They're fantastic. And, and, and part of it, part of why we don't like them is because they, in most markets, tend to have what feels like a monopoly. So why should they be great at service? Why would they invest in that? It, it, it's tough mm -hmm. to make that argument. But even there, great service pays off if you do it the right way. And one of the biggest metrics that they use in the cable industry is what they call truck rolls. In other words, how many times do they send a truck out to a client or customer premise? Well, I know how much that costs to send one truck, but I probably don't have visibility on how many trucks do I have to send per issue. And on top of that, how many people in the customer service department or technical support department do I need to talk to per issue? Because guess what? That's a different budget than the budgets that's sending trucks out to the premise. And how many different account credits do I have to get or give out because of poor service? That might come from a different budget entirely. So I have maybe mm -hmm. three, four different budget line items, and I see what those expenses are. 
But if I can't tie them together and say, wow, great service could reduce those costs and keep my customers happier, then I don't understand the math behind great service. Be careful what you're measuring, too. That's true. So that that brings me to mind of something, another example you mentioned in the book, which was um, a company I'd never heard of before, uh, or a, I guess a sports team, Chicago Fire. Yes. And um, they they do um, uh, this uh, pre-shift training uh, before games just to get everyone um, on 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 point with what what the different um, issues might be or what what they need people to understand for that game. Now they've they've they and and others have clearly made uh, this a priority. So is is it because it's a division that's being led in a company like a, a small group like that? Would they have? Um, a complete customer experience or service division, or how how do how do great companies like that lead, or great organizations like that lead this? Well, it has to start with a priority, whether it's at an organizational level. But you know, something I think you're alluding to a little bit is, if you don't have the organization commitment, you can do it at a team or a functional level. What's interesting about the Chicago Fire, they're they're a major league soccer club, and they face a challenge that is actually not that unique there's a lot of businesses that that are that face this model which is their employees by and large are not the ones directly providing service so if you go to a a a soccer match and you're in chicago and see the chicago fire play uh the people that are operating the stadium don't report to the chicago fire they're they in other words the chicago fire they're not chicago fire employees i should say so uh the people running the concessions parking etc all of them are not Chicago Fire employees, but they have that relationship with the Chicago Fire because they're part of that game day or match day experience. Mm-hmm. And, and again, in many businesses, we have this where, where we have contractors or vendors or other types of partners that are delivering service on our behalf. So they've had that that extra unique challenge. And, and what they have done, and I think very successfully, is they've gotten uh, all of them, these, these kind of disparate group of vendors and, and, and business partners, et cetera, to kind of fall under that that same vision, and then you mentioned that you know they do these kind of daily trainings. Uh, one of the things that they do though is they look at very carefully at voice of customer feedback, whether it's surveys, complaints, etc., and they pinpoint hot spots. And, and maybe it's with a, a particular concession. A- and so what they do before the next match, they try to address that issue. And often it comes in the form of what they call spark training, which is, hey, we're going to spend just 30 minutes. Uh, with this concession operator and with their employees and just talking through this issue and talking about, you know, how can we address it and create a better experience for the fans? You know, maybe the line's too long or, you know, there's something that was a poor experience at the last match. Let's address it right now so that by the next match, that's no longer a sore spot. So it goes all the way from the, the top of the organization all the way down to the grassroots levels and then even beyond your organization to your vendors and your, your various partners, contractors, et cetera. An example like that is, is such a beast. We're, we're here in uh, uh, Saskatchewan, just our pro football team, the Saskatchewan Rough Riders, are just opening a new stadium this year. And exactly the same kind of situation where they are tenants, really, of the stadium. Yep. There's a group uh, that runs the stadium, and then there's volunteers that will help out during the game day, and then there's also the businesses that are there with concessions and everything else. How, it, it, you know, it, it takes, um, like you talk about a leadership, but it would take that leadership from many organizations, wouldn't it, from the 
the owners of the stadium to the football operation to everyone to kind of come together and say we want this to have a top-notch customer experience it, it does indeed and, and to kind of use that that specific example uh, you have to keep in mind that all of those different operators have their own agendas and, yeah. and how do we tie those together so volunteers is a great example a lot of event venues use volunteers to help in a variety of capacities and where do those volunteers come from typically there's some sort of nonprofit or community organization or church or, or some type of organization that's that's volunteering to raise funds for whatever their cause is so do they care about a great experience uh, i mean i don't want to sound cynical and say no but i'd say <laughs> it's probably not top of mind they're probably saying hey how do i raise money for our organization so we can be successful and and so one of the it's a big challenge, but I think one of the things that, that you can do to be successful in that type of environment is make it as easy as possible for people to create a great service experience. And so, you know, to kind of stick with that volunteers example, for any of your listeners have ever experienced maybe a volunteer when you're at a game or a match and the person, you know, is, is maybe they're ringing your, 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 up your, uh, your snack purchase and they don't know what they're doing because they are a volunteer. I think that's an example of, you know, we haven't put that person in a position to create a great experience or to have a good experience themselves or to feel very successful. And so the bottom line for them probably is just raising money for their organization. But what if we could find a way to make it easy for them to connect with fans and have a great time and say, wow, not only do we raise money for our, our nonprofit, we had such a fun time that we want to come back again. And I think if you can concentrate on those little things and help even those groups be successful, they're going to help your organization be successful, too. That's an excellent point, because I think innately we as humans want to do, uh, want to provide or want to help each other. Maybe we don't want to provide it good service in those terms, but, but it's in our nature to want to be helpful and look after each other. And it's just I guess you're saying a question of giving them good definition of, of how to do that and what it means. Absolutely. And I think you're right. Most people want to be helpful. They want to be good at whatever they're doing. And, and one of the challenges that many organizations face, I don't think they're doing it deliberately, but they're not consciously making it easy for their employees, their contractors, their vendors, et cetera, to be successful. One of the, the dirtiest secrets, kind of looking at, at other industries, for example, the contact center industry, there's research that's been done that says when you call or email or otherwise contact a company, you know, there's this big group of people called the contact center, it used to be called a call center that would handle those contacts. And leaders in that industry have kind of admitted that uh, by and large, they don't fully empower their employees to provide exceptional service. And as customers, we've, we probably agree. We're like, yeah, that's very true. I've called and <laughs> emailed and I don't get exceptional service. But often it's it's not that frontline employee. It's that they don't have the ability to do it. So if I haven't made it easy for that person to be awesome, it's actually pretty discouraging to be in that kind of job because every day you feel like you're failing a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I love the word obsessive in your book title, and I wonder, or obsessed, I guess, um, what are the pitfalls that companies fall into? And is that one of them that they're just not going far enough with the their vision of a great service culture? Well, there are a lot. Um, I think the biggest one is a lack of commitment. And 
for, for me, the, the, the example I think many people can relate to is maybe there's something similar where, where you live. Where I live, there's a, a really nice uh, reservoir. So it's kind of this little lake, and it's got this really cool jogging, hiking, walking path that's got mm-hmm. two lanes. It's paved. It, it's, it's really a nice amenity. And right around the first of the year, it is chock full of people. Everybody's out, right? And you can imagine, right? We yeah. got our new got a new gift, and it's uh, some running shoes. Or I sent a New Year's resolution. I'm going to get in shape this year, and now I'm out. And I'm I'm riding my new bike, and everybody's excited. And you come back just a month later, just one month later, and we're back to normal. Most of those people are gone. Mm-hmm. And it's because it, it's easy to proclaim this is going to be the year of getting in shape, or in the service world, this is the year of customer focus. It's a lot harder, and it takes a lot more guts and commitment to stick with it. And, and I think that's the biggest, the biggest issue that organizations face. The, the, the next biggest issue, and it, it kind of goes hand in hand with that, is they don't go through all the steps. Uh, I, when my book came out, uh, the first week it came out, so it's just a few weeks ago, sharing this with a, an executive, and, and she, was, she hadn't read it yet. I just I handed it to her, and she said, well, give me the highlights. Like, what's the one or two things that I should take <laughs> away? And like, it doesn't work like that. that I mean, if, if you saw a cake in a magazine, you're like, I want to make that cake. But, you know, I'm kind of special around here, so I'm only going to use half the ingredients, and I'm going to skip about half the steps, and I'm going to do a few things just differently. That's fine, but don't expect to get that cake. You're going to get something else, and it's probably not going to be as good. Mm-hmm. And, and so executives kind of self-sabotage because they're always itching to kind of jump to the conclusion without understanding the process. And, and I, probably the third thing I would add is that when I examine organizations that are customer-focused, you know, I, I really try to decode what was working well, what they were doing consistently. And I found that it wasn't a pick-and-choose proposition that, that these organizations were diligently following kind of a set of steps and uh, that's that's why I laid out the book as a I call it a handbook because it, it's not something that you know you can pick one or two great ideas and go do them. It, it really is a step by step process, and I think that's probably what most organizations miss. They they don't have that commitment. They're trying to get a quick shortcut, and they're not committed to following the process. It's true. I, I something that comes to mind with those uh, those points you made was I remember um, oh, I can't remember the day, but there's uh, after I think it's six weeks after January first. It's a Fat Friday or something where <laughs> the where they've measured Foursquare measured that uh, um, fast food restaurant attendance just spikes as people <laughs> give up on their commitments. <laughs> but. W- is it again measurables like where executives are always looking for that result right like okay so we've put this new service program in place and nothing yet or i don't see it on the bottom line um how do you or is there even an answer to how do you commit or what do you recommend companies do for uh to to make sure that they're going looking at the long game as opposed to uh, that short-term result well, you do have to have that commitment from the outset, and if you have short-term pressure and short-term thinking, it's it's probably not going to work. But you mes- you've mentioned something that I think's an important element of that, which is measurement. And even in measurement, we see companies and leaders taking shortcuts that cause unintended consequences. So I'll, I'll give you a very common example. 
there's an issue called survey begging. And I don't know if you've, you've heard this term before, but, but uh, no, maybe I for your, your listeners, it's, it's when you do business with a company, maybe it's your, you know, the car dealership and where you get your car serviced or, or maybe it's a retailer or um, maybe it's a hotel. And, and at the end of the interaction, they say, you're going to get a survey. And I'd really like for you to give me a 10. <laughs> and, and and then they even go into usually they offer some sort of incentive like you know if you give me a great score I'm going to give you a discount on your next uh, service or they'll say they'll try to appeal to an emotional thing you know I'm going to get in trouble mm-hmm. if I don't get a 10 on this survey and, and so it's called survey begging because they're, they're essentially begging you to give them a, a good score mm-hmm. and, and yeah it, it's, it's becoming more and more widespread as, as companies are are looking into using surveys. So why does that happen? Well, it happens because that person has either an incentive, a clear incentive, or a clear disincentive to um, get a certain survey score. And, and why why is their leader putting that incentive or disincentive in front of them? Because they're equating a good survey score with great service. Mm-hmm. So they're still trying to take that shortcut, right? And what happens instead is, instead of of using the survey the way it's intended, which is figuring out what we're doing well so we can keep doing that and figuring out what we need to improve upon so we can make those improvements, it artificially inflates the score. And then here's the the part that's really kind of unfortunate. The vast majority of companies that are surveying their customers do absolutely nothing with that data. (laughs) And this has been studied. There's been a couple different studies. There was a study out uh, of number of years ago that said it was around 10%. More recently, I saw one, and I apologize off the top of my head. I can't remember who, who came out with this last one, but I think it was around 30%. I've seen some other numbers. And, and just anecdotally from talking to customer service leaders, I've gotten more than a few to admit that they don't do anything with that data other than report the number. So what's the point, right? And, and mm-hmm. so even there, um, you know, your, your numbers might look good, but that doesn't mean you're doing a great job. We had uh, actually, um, I've, yeah, firsthand experience on both of those. We worked with a um, a car dealer that they needed that um, that ten out of ten score, mm. and it was it, it seemed odd to me that because we were doing a campaign to make sure they got the ten out of ten score, right. that anything other than a ten meant nothing to the. Uh, to the manufacturer. So, you know, if you give them a nine out of 10, it didn't mean anything, which seemed ridiculous to me, but yeah, measuring the wrong thing. It and then is. often see, yeah. And often what's interesting hear, about the, about the survey scores is if you look back and see your tens, because they don't do anything with the scores, many organizations don't realize this, but if you go back and mine your tens, you're often going to find some pretty negative comments in there. And some like, well, I don't want to, you know, David was an outstanding salesperson. <laughs> I don't want to get him in trouble, but wow, right. did I have a bad experience with somebody else. <laughs> and so I'm going to put it in my comments, but that won't get addressed because we just put the 10 in because I don't want to hurt somebody's feelings or get somebody in trouble. And then the other side of that was the... Um looking or not not doing anything with the results because right. often if they are negative we'll just well it was you know that customer had this in a um, you know really unusual <laughs> case and we're not gonna i'm not gonna pay attention to that or it's never an indicator of anything awful <laughs> <laughs> anyway jeff I'm, i really appreciate uh your your time and uh i, I encourage everyone to to pick up the book and because it really is a handbook and a, and a lot of uh useful tools outside of the book as well that you uh, reached out and offered uh, online so how can people find it and learn more about you 
Well, the book's on Amazon. That's probably the easiest way to find it, the Service Culture Handbook. Uh, you can find also find the book and learn more about me uh, on the book's website, serviceculturebook.com. The really nice thing is, as far as I know, I am the only Jeff Toyster, so I'm pretty easy to find. <laughs> and Jeff Toyster, T-O-Y-S-T-O-I. I don't know, it's almost T-O-I-S-T-E-R. said T-O-I-S-T-E-R. Yeah. So, Excellent. Uh, I was fortunate enough to snag that handle on Twitter, at T-O-I-S-T-E-R. So even there, you can find me quite easily. Excellent. Thank you again very much, Jeff, and I uh, really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It's been my pleasure. That's the show for this week. Thank you very much for listening, and remember to subscribe on iTunes. Talk to you next week.